So around this time each year, I invite us to spend a Sunday reflecting on the Unitarian half of our UU heritage. Uh, Both the Unitarian and the Universalist movements of which we are a part uh, began centuries before either any of us were born, and exploring some of the stories of our collective past can help us understand our present and can help inform our future. And today is a particularly auspicious time to reflect on the Unitarian half of our heritage because today is the precise um, bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of William Ellery Channing's influential sermon, Unitarian Christianity. It was delivered only about 50 miles east of here at the First Independent Church of Baltimore, known now as First Unitarian. How many of you have been inside that building? Okay, a few hands, same in the first service. It's really a gorgeous space if you ever get a chance. It's a kind of classical cathedral design, uh, really, really interesting. Uh, so uh, Channing delivered his sermon there on May 5th, 1819, and that helped catalyze a movement toward claiming the name Unitarian uh, more boldly and unapologetically. To better appreciate why this sermon matters then and now, I'd like to invite us to zoom out a little and consider the historical context in which it was first um, received. I've preached a previous sermon all about Channing's life, so I don't want to repeat that. That's in our sermon archive if you're interested. Uh, So I'll instead focus on the ways his sermon was very much a direct response to a conflict that began a decade and a half earlier uh, in 1805 with a controversial appointment to uh, a professorship at Harvard University and ended about 30 years later in 1835. Channing preached this most famous sermon in this middle phase of a controversy that really did last a generation. And there are resonance from this controversy that echo today. There are these important historical reasons that we UUs have inherited these sayings, like we believe in deeds, not creeds. And we believe that we don't have to believe alike to love alike. There are reasons we say these things. Both of these slogans, for instance, highlight our emphasis on ethics over dogma. We are a big tent movement. We don't require members of this congregation to subscribe to a faith statement, you know, a set of things that we believe, a particular set of theological doctrines. And the freedom we enjoy to prioritize right relationship with one another amidst our diversity over a common um, right belief, that was really hard won, and I don't want us to miss that. In the decades before Channing's famous sermon, tension had been building for quite some time around uh, between congregational Christians who were more theologically orthodox and those who were more theologically liberal. The orthodox group tended to stress the importance of authoritative doctrine. So some of you have heard me say before, when you think about that word orthodox, you can think about like your orthodontist. So ortho means straight. Orthodente straightens your teeth, right? Orthodoxe, so any of you grew up in congregations that sang a doxology every week, doxo, logos, that just means praise words. So orthodox, like an orthodontist, it straightens your praise. It gets that, we're going to fix your words, make sure they're right. So some of you may have grown up in congregations in that spirit whose Sunday service included reciting a doctrinal statement like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, anybody? All right, a lot of you. 
Uh, in Channing's con- um, context, it wasn't either of those. The, the favored creed among the crowd he hung out with was the Westminster Confession of 1646. Not that stupid old 1547 version, right? The 1646 version. It detailed beliefs about the Bible, Trinity, uh, predestination, the meaning of Jesus' death, the relationship between church and state, the end of the world, etc., And the Orthodox thought that what really mattered was making sure that members of congregations signed on that the Westminster Confession of 1646 was the right, true, and correct way to believe. Whereas liberals put much greater emphasis on tolerating a wider diversity of beliefs as long as you were living a good life. I should also clarify that at the time, all of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears pretty much exclusively understood themselves to be Christians, albeit often as theologically liberal Christians. At the time of Channing's sermon in 1819, it's important to keep in mind that like the transcendentalist controversy that began opening our movement up more to the world's religions, that was a few decades in the future. The um, challenge of Darwin's evolutionary science you know, didn't come till 1859. The humanist controversy that tremendously influenced our movement, that wasn't really till the early 20th century. So at this time, Channing believed that the commonalities between liberals and conservatives was far more important than their differences, but he wanted to be clear that there was nothing wrong with the ways the liberals were different. Uh, However, he was unable to assuage this growing fear among the orthodox that the liberals' tolerance for diversity of beliefs would lead them over time to become less recognizably Christian. And here's the thing. From our perspective, 200 years later, there are many ways in which the orthodox fears were right on. Uh, Although Christianity remains the fourth of our six sources, it has become one of many sources instead of what it was at the time, the one source. Uh, I would add not that there's anything wrong with that. But Channing really did think that Unitarianism would always be a Christian Unitarianism, uh, significantly different from the pluralistic, multicultural Unitarian Universalism that we know today. In Channing's day, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back in this growing tension between the Orthodox and the liberals came in 1805, a decade and a half before his historic sermon. Henry Ware, this theological liberal, was elected to be the Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard. Uh, That tipped the balance at that seminary so that suddenly there were more liberal professors than there were orthodox professors. And again, fear arose among the orthodox that that the seminary was going to start forming increasingly liberal ministers. They were correct. Uh, as a side note, if any of you have ever, have any of you ever been to General Assembly or watched online the annual Ware Lecture? They're, they're really great, so I see quite a few hands. So that Ware Lecture, that's named after the same family of Wares as Henry Ware, whose appointment launched the Unitarian Controversy in 1805. The, the more you, some of you be like, I don't care. But uh, for others of us, the, the more you know about our history, the more connections you start to see everywhere. Oh, that's why that. So like if you get early to GA, you can go to the Berry Street lecture. It's named the Berry Street because Channing's congregation was on Berry Street, and that was the door that the ministers went in for this annual lectureship. So, like, there's reasons for all, well, not reason for everything. Many things have a reason. Uh, so let me just tell you a little more. 
phase one of this conflict between the Orthodox and the liberals, it spanned about a decade from 1805 to 1815. And during this time, one of the common criticisms, as Macon was talking about during the spoken meditation, was that the theological liberals, who really just understood themselves as Christians, they were being called your Unitarians because their opponents perceived the most important thing about them was that they didn't believe in the Trinity. And so they're like, you're Unitarian. And they would say, actually, we don't even think that's important at all. And what we really think is important is, are you living a life, an ethical, moral life, as Jesus showed us how to live? The, and this is where Channing's sermon, Unitarian Christianity, comes into play. It comes in the middle phase of this controversy from 1815 to 1825. His 1819 sermon's right there in the middle of this middle of the three phases. He used his sermon to define theological liberalism on its own terms rather than allow it to be defined by the much less charitable um, descriptions of his opponents, his detractors. There's a whole other important episode that happened in 1818, the year before Channing's sermon. It's called the Dedham Decision. These are the things that, like, when Megan went to see the Ministerial Fellowship Committee, they ask you things like, what was the Dedham Decision? Uh, This court case led to huge property battles over whether the liberals or the conservatives would control the property and the buildings. Uh, Some of you that have paid attention to the news, like the Methodists and the Episcopalians, have been riled by these uh, in recent um, decades. And so this conflict was about more than ideas. Uh, and if, you, if you've visited towns in New England or do so in the future, you can notice in many of these smaller towns, there's one big church building often in the center. And, and in many of those New England towns, it's actually a Unitarian congregation. Uh, and that means the liberals won in that town. Or maybe it's not Unitarian. And that means the Orthodox won in that, in that town. I will, however, restrain myself from going into too much more detail. When I teach uh, UU History at Wesley Theological Seminary, I have a 90-minute lecture with the scintillating title, American Universalism, American Unitarianism, Origins to 1850, Development and Early Controversies. <laughs> so you just got the five-minute version of that 90-minute lecture. Uh, but because this is the 200th anniversary of Channing's Baltimore sermon, let me talk a little bit about the text of that sermon. But I'm actually only going to be able to touch on a few brief themes because Channing's famous sermon weighs in at more than 13,000 words. It took him about 90 minutes to preach, and it said they didn't have sound back then, so actually most people didn't even hear it uh, when he was delivering it. As a point of comparison, my sermons, instead of being 13,000 words, are about 2,000 words. Uh, As my homiletics professor in seminary used to say, sermons should be about the sacred and about 20 minutes. (laughs) So... Then again, Channing did have some idea of what he was doing. If he had preached this sermon on a Sunday morning in his own home congregation in Boston, it would have been to sympathetic ears. Instead, he preached it on a Wednesday in Baltimore on the occasion of an ordination of that congregation's um, new minister. Those of you who attended my installation here as minister a few years ago or who have attended similar events in the past know that on occasions such as ministerial installations and ordinations, that means neighboring congregations will be in attendance. You may remember the ministers processing in and sitting on the the front rows. You'll have another opportunity to see that. We've just this past week set the date for Megan's ordination. It'll be here in this sanctuary. I know, it's very exciting. On June 30th, so you can... Save the date, uh, Sunday, June 30th, 4 p.m., right here. Uh, so you can see some of that. And it will look very similar to what, except there won't be a 90-minute sermon, uh, it will look very similar to the ordination of Jared Sparks, who 
uh, that Channing was preaching. So Channing was ready for the controversy he knew would ensure even if, uh, ensue even if people didn't hear it. He had his sermon prepared for publication immediately afterward, and there really was high demand. It went into five editions within the first six weeks. Especially over the next century, many more editions were printed, including in England, in France, in Holland, in Germany, in Hungary, in India, and other countries. Unsurprisingly, many Orthodox colleagues hated the sermon. They uh, described Channing's words as a cup of poison in fatal error and an entirely different religion from what you believe. But many hearers and readers open to a more progressive theological view were deeply grateful to hear Channing's clear and reasoned articulation of what it could mean to be religious in the modern world. Now, I do think that Channing's sermon, all 13,000 words of it, are worth revisiting. There's a reason even today that one of the requirements to become a UU minister is to read that sermon by Channing, along with hundreds of other required readings. We could have a talk another time of how might one preach a sermon that all future UU ministers will have to read. That's a separate conversation. At the same time, I don't want to give the impression that Channing's sermon is without problems. Although there is very much of value, even on the first page, you see evidence of what I would frankly call his Christian supremacy. He thought that Christianity was the last, best, and most perfect revelation. So although those parts of his sermon do not hold up today, there are many other parts that were a critical contribution to what is known as the liberal turn in religion. This is not the turn to the Democratic Party. This is the classic liberalism from the Latin word liber, meaning freedom. So it was a turn toward a reorientation toward freedom in religion. In contrast to the orthodox view that one should believe something because of hierarchy, right? Because a religious leader tells you what to believe or you should believe something because of tradition, because it's allegedly always been that way, even though when you really look into history, it's a lot messier and complicated than that. So in contrast, theological liberalism, this turn toward freedom, emphasized in um, reason and experience as equally or more important to tradition, to community, to hierarchy. And in a world where theological orthodoxy was far more dominant than it is today, uh, it is difficult to overemphasize how significant it was to have a prominent minister like Channing reassure you that it was okay to trust your reason, that all those things that had bothered you about, that just seems illogical to me. He's like, that's because it's illogical. You know, it's okay to trust your experience, what you know to be true, because you've experienced it firsthand for yourself. I give this example a lot when I'm talking to more conservative groups of, you know, seeing people just come to realize that why do I think it's okay that women are ministers? Because I've had the experience of powerful women ministers. You know, why do I think it's okay to for LGBT equality? It's because I have many same-sex friends, and I see that they are no more or less messed up than heterosexual parents, right? So that, and it's, uh, it, right. So it's that shift from saying we have to prove what the Bible says to my reason and my experience being serious. You know, that's what feminism's all about, right? Taking women's experience seriously. I mean, that, that's, where, that's what theological liberalism has given us. 
I should add that Channing's emphasis was much more on the importance of reason in religion. The, the real emphasis on experience in our movement came with the, just the next generation, with Emerson, with Thoreau, with Mar- Margaret Fuller, who led, again, the transcendentalist revolt within Unitarianism. Now, some of you grew up theologically liberal, so these ideas may not seem that radical, but I can remember being a college sophomore beginning to seriously question the theologically conservative beliefs that I had been raised with. And it's one thing to question them in your head. It's another thing to actually say those things out loud, uh, boldly, un, you know, unapologetically, and, and just frankly. Uh, and from that perspective, Channing's 200-year-old words wouldn't have been as helpful to me in the late 1990s as they were um, helpful to many burgeoning liberals in the early 1800s. Now, I didn't know Channing's sermon at the time. In my own case, it was books like the Episcopal priest John Shelby Spong's Why Christianity Must Change or Die, books like that that hit me like a bolt of lightning. You may can think of the equivalent books in some of your cases. But I can equally imagine the power of Channing's words. And keep in mind, Bishop Spong is writing these bold words in 1999. How much more impressive was it that Channing was writing them 180 years earlier in 1819? Channing wrote, quote, our leading principle in interpreting scripture is that the Bible is a book written for humanity in the language of humanity, and its meaning is to be sought in the same manner as other books. And that's incredible, just to say, read this book just as you would read any other book. He affirmed, quote, that different portions of the Bible refer to the times when they were written, to feelings and usages which have passed away and without the knowledge of which we are constantly in danger of extending to all times and places what was actually temporary and of local application. Yes, that's super helpful to say. This may or may not have even been helpful back then, but certainly today we can see it as the best chance back then we need to figure things out for ourselves. He went on to detail, you know, lay out logical contradictions in various places of Scripture. You know, right on. Thank you for allowing people to be honest about that. Many people in his day read these passages and felt affirmed in what they had always suspected. For the first time, many people found themselves having permission to free themselves from these constrictive theological garments and doctrines that they had felt bound within. Before I conclude, allow me as well to briefly tell you just a bit of the rest of the story of that larger controversy, uh, Unitarian controversy, which again began in 1805 and of which Channing's 1819 sermon was the midpoint of. Channing's bold words helped bring theological liberals closer together, again leading six years later to the organization of the American Unitarian Association in 1825. But a decade after that, historians um, mark the end of the Unitarian controversy to 1835, and I'll tell you why, and this is one of the points that I find most fascinating. The theological liberals had barely unified. They developed this clear identity to themselves. We often define ourselves in, not in vacuums, but in opposition to other people, right? So they just kind of unified, um, developing this clear identity in contrast to the Orthodox. No sooner had they done that than they began to fracture within themselves, what we sometimes call the circular firing squad of liberals. 
liberalism. Uh, the key moment arrived in 1836 when the former Unitarian minister, Ralph Waldo Emerson, published his first book, Nature. And that helped launch the transcendentalist revolt within Unitarianism, the cherished reason that had, um, in too many cases, led Unitarians to become, in Emerson's words, corpse cold. But that is the story for another day. Fast forwarding to our own time, I'll share a final historical resonance. Today, the brilliant scholar of religion, Karen King, is the Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard. She was the first woman appointed to that position, the oldest endowed chair in the United States, I believe, dating back to 1721. But that's the same chair to which Henry Ware was appointed in 1805 uh, that launched the Unitarian controversy in the first place. Some of you may know the name Harvey Cox. He wrote a um, landmark book called The Secular City in the mid-20th century. He was the previous holder of the Hollis chair, you know, uh, before Karen King. These things are still with us, right, these um, systems. Here, too, part of me wants to confess that the Orthodox were not wrong to be worried. Today, Dr. Karen King, along with most of the rest of the faculty at Harvard Divinity School, tends to be stirring up theological liberalism exactly the way the Orthodox feared to happen. But again, I would add, good for her, and not that there's anything wrong with that. And as ever, the question eventually, though, turns back on each of us. As Channing did in his day, as Karen King and others are doing today, how do you feel led to speak and to act, to build the world we dream about? You know, Channing could have just phoned it in at that ordination sermon. He could have preached something that he'd preached before. Instead, I invite you to imagine him at that desk, laboring over those 13,000 words to, to lay out this vision that was so liberating for many people, what might you feel led to do or say within your spheres of influence? 